You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Miranda Bogan. I'm a policy fellow at the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, and we'd like to welcome you to our briefing today entitled, Will Frivolous Lawsuits Be the End of the Internet? This event is uh, hosted in conjunction with the Congressional Internet Caucus, and we'd like to thank our co-chairs. On the House side, it's uh, Congressman Bob Goodlatte and Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. And on the Senate side, Senator John Thune and Senator Patrick Leahy. So thanks to the caucus for co-hosting with us. Uh, Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. The Twitter hashtag for today's event is Slap Talks with two T's. Uh, Two P's, excuse me, Slap Talk. Um, If you want to tweet or follow along. And uh, the Twitter uh, information for all the panelists or their organizations are on your program. We've also got a number of events coming up this month. Next next week we have an event on music streaming, so you should come out to that. And we're announcing more uh, throughout July and maybe a little bit into August. And so with that, uh, I want to introduce our panel, a great panel, very experienced on this issue. Um, We have Amy Austin, who's the publisher emeritus of the Washington City Paper. And next to her, we have Laurent Crenshaw, who's the uh, head of federal public policy for Yelp. Um, Right down the line is Jenny Rasmussen, the senior policy counsel at the American Association for Justice. And at the end, we have Kevin Goldberg, who's an attorney at Fletcher, Heald, and Hildreth. Um, and we're looking forward to hearing from all of you, and feel free to jump in, uh, even if I direct a question at, at any of you individually. So defamation suits and other suits of that nature have traditionally been an issue that's dealt with by journalists, but with the uh, rise of sites like Yelp, Glassdoor, TripAdvisor, Facebook, where people are, are reviewing businesses, it's, it's come more into a, a situation where individuals um, are at risk of being sued by those companies or individuals about whom they're writing um, on those platforms. So while while uh, media platforms might be prepared for those types of suits uh, with insurance or, or, or legal teams, individuals are often intimidated by these types of lawsuits. Uh, they don't, you know, they're scared of the cost of these uh, drawn-out um, legal processes, and they are intimidated to take those reviews down. And not only them, you can imagine that other people might think twice about speaking out against such a business if they see someone else getting dragged into a lawsuit. So we have this chilling effect of freedom of speech online. Uh, so that's what we're talking about today. Slap suits uh, or strategic lawsuits against public participation um, is, is the terminology for it. So you might hear that, that term getting thrown around today quite a bit. And uh, recently we have introduced the Speak Free Act of 2015, uh, which, we brought in, which was brought in May uh, by Representative Farenthold and Eshu, and has a number of co-sponsors at this point. So we're going to be talking about that, both unpacking a little bit of the legal and procedural issues, but also talking more broadly about what this means for freedom of speech online writ large. Um, I want to remind everyone in the audience that the, the advisory committee and the caucus don't take any positions on issues. So... Um, we try to have balanced discussions as possible, so um, I might play devil's advocate a little bit, and again, feel free to jump in, ask questions of each other as well. Um, and with that, I'd, I'd like to turn to Kevin, who has uh, done a lot of work in this case, to talk probably, like, what are slap suits? Why, in plain English, why does this matter to people? Well, thanks. Uh, my name's Kevin Goldberg. I'm an attorney for the law firm of, at the law firm of Fletcher, Hilton Hildreth, and among my clients are the, the sort of old school uh, slap um, subjects, 
the American Society of News Editors is one of them. The Association of Alternative News Media is another, and that's a, a membership organization that includes the city paper. Um, I'm also on the board of what's called the Public Participation Project, which is an organization dedicated to raising awareness about anti-slap statutes and, and, and slap lawsuits. So I'm, I'm distinctly not <laughs> unbiased on this issue. I, I clearly have a position that anti-slap statutes are, are a very important protection of free speech. And, and why is it that you should care? Well, we'll hear a very personal story, I'm sure, from Amy. And, and I, I actually have some, some backup if she doesn't get to the part I really want to tell that shows you just how egregious this can be. But it really does affect everybody. And I think that's, that's something to know um, when we're sort of focusing today with regard to the Internet is that's the biggest change of the last five years. It's not like slap lawsuits have come around in the last five years. They've existed forever. It's just that sort of the game has changed with regard to slaps, where everybody is now, of course, able to, to reach out to the entire world. And the reason the, the anti-slap statutes are important are that they level the playing field for you or I when we say something critical about somebody that's bigger than us, more powerful than us, has more money than us. Um, you know, I, I said I've worked primarily with media organizations, and a lot of them obviously don't want to be sued. It's a drain on their time. It's a drain on their resources. It's emotionally stressful, even if you know you're going to win. Even from a lawyer's position, I get stressed out when I have a client, you know, uh, threatened with a lawsuit. I'd love to be one of these guys that sits here and, you know, you see in the movies and, you know, oh, forget this. We'll get that tossed out of court in, in days. It's not a problem. You're going to win. That's not real life. Real life is you get a lawsuit, the clock starts ticking with regard to your, your attorney, at least if you have one more generous than me that may, you know, unless you have one more generous than me that may not charge you for defending them. But lawyers aren't cheap. Time isn't cheap. Every time, every minute you spend defending this with your lawyers in deposition, in court, is a minute you are not working. Every dime you spend going there is a, a dime you're not spending somewhere else. And all this to defend what is in most instances a frivolous lawsuit designed to do nothing more than keep you from criticizing somebody else. That's why it's so important, because you may win the suit, but it will take its toll. And these suits, the, or these, these statutes, the anti-slap statutes that exist in just under 30 states, but not in federal courts right now, uh, in the, you know, and not, and not in every state, and certainly not within the federal court system. It hasn't fully been recognized in every case that's gone to federal courts. Give you that ability to knock out the frivolous suit more quickly, and in some instances, actually get your fees paid for. So again, I mean, you know, somebody brings, a big corporation brings a suit against you. Great, you know, you may win, and, and they may know this, and they may understand it may get knocked out quickly. They've taken up your time and, and some of your money. But they might think twice if they actually have to pay you for that time or money. So that's why this is really, really important for everybody. Amy, maybe... Maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about your experience. Uh. Sure, I can chime in now. Um, so I'm Amy Austin, and um, I'm the publisher, Emeritus of Washington City Paper. So as Kevin said, City Paper is with a is one of a local alternative, what's called local alternative media. There's about 113 uh, papers, media companies like City Paper across the United States. So our job, our focus, our passion is to cover local news. So we cover local news and culture for cities uh, across the United States. Um, you know, our, these companies are part of this association. So City Paper, Washington City Paper, which is, which is your local news source, 
um, was sued. We wrote a, a fantastic story. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. We wrote this uh, incredible story uh, about the Redskins. Uh, and it was called the Cranky, um, uh, this is like full of, uh, let me get the, the name right, because it's Cranky Redskins Fan's Guide to Dan Snyder. Um, so it was, it, this was in the fall um, of 2011, and it was published um, right after a big loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. It was a Monday night football game, and we, you know, completely screwed up the game. Uh, and then that Thursday, we came out with this piece. And it, there's a sports writer named Dave McKenna who wrote it. Uh, and he just took every, all his uh, knowledge about Dan Snyder and the Redskins and all the ways in which uh, he had wronged the team uh, and the way he had spent his life and, and wrapped it up into one very funny guide. Um, it's, you know, this, the piece stands the test of time, uh, and everything in it was accurate. So, um, you know, it got sort of normal play at the time. Like, when we published it, people enjoyed it. There was some talk about it. Uh, but then um, we soon after got a letter from Dan Snyder um, that, that famously said, uh, and this is sort of the money line, um, and it was sent, we were owned at the time by an um, investment firm called Adelia. So I think this is an important part of the story, too, is that our ownership was, you know, in, in flux. So he wrote the letter to an investment firm. As Kevin said, media organizations were, were aware that we can be sued at any time. It's part of the business. Um, we're aware that we want to get everything absolutely right all the time so that we don't get sued. Um, but at, what happened here was the letter initially went to the investment firm, and investment firms do not like to get sued, turns out. Um, but, they, but in the letter it stated, Mr. Snyder has more than sufficient means to protect his res reputation. We presume that defending such litigation would not be a rational strategy for an investment firm such as yours. Indeed, the cost of litigation would, pre would presumably and quickly outstrip the asset value of Washington City Paper. So what he's saying is that he could quickly outstrip the value of Washington City Paper. So his intent was to put us out of business. Um, and uh, the, that's why we're here today. So that the, there was an anti-slap law in D.C. at the time that was relatively new um, that led, presumably, for, for him to... Uh, drop the case against us. But this is a classic case of a Goliath, you know, um, after a small media organization. And it was a very, very difficult trying time. I mean, what they wanted was an apology, which I wasn't willing to give because we had nothing to apologize for. What they wanted was a retraction. There was nothing to retract. We didn't have any, there, there was nothing wrong with the story. Um, or they wanted us to, um, you know, this was, 
I think they would have been pleased uh, if we had uh, fired the, the reporter. Um, I don't think that was ever expressly stated, but uh, but that's the sort of things that that were uh, at play um, that we had to defend for over a year. And so that's the sort of media side. That's that's what we kind of expect from defamation suits. But now with the internet, we have individuals who are the targets of these uh, suits. So maybe Laurent, you could tell us a little bit about how that's changed with, with review sites, with the proliferation of online platforms where people can write really whatever they want, uh, but may not be thinking about what they're writing and, and the consequences of that um, and how, how they might be able to defend themselves. Sure. Um, so again, I'm Laurent Crenshaw, head of federal public policy at Yelp. And if you haven't heard of Yelp before, Yelp is a website that connects people to uh, businesses and places that are around them. Um, currently has about 142 million unique monthly visitors and is in 32 countries. Started 11 years ago in the city of San Francisco. And as a part of that process for the mechanism for connecting people to local businesses around them, it also has become uh, a site for aggregating reviews and assigning ratings to the particular places and businesses that you might go to. So, for example, we're here in Washington, D.C. right now in the Rayburn House office building. I think that the Rayburn Cafeteria has like about a two-star rating on Yelp with like five or six reviews. Yeah. So it's just, you know, whether it's restaurants or dry cleaners or plumbers or businesses in general or places in general, they have a Yelp page, generally speaking, and ratings that are there. Um, and it doesn't just apply for Yelp, though. You also have sites like TripAdvisor, which are for travel uh, and sort of hotels and things all around the world. You have ZocDocs, which is a site that's come up for uh, doctors and finding out the best doctors that might be around you. Google does it as well with their Google Plus results and reviews that are there. So, and even Facebook as well. If you go into a business page for Facebook now, you'll see ratings for businesses and people will leave reviews and opinions. So really, with the uh, rise of social media platforms and the internet, there's also been the rise of the review culture that Yelp has really sort of been at the front of, which is where individuals have had the ability and opportunity to share their opinion, to share their fact-based experience with a particular business or with a particular place, and they do it really for the greater sort of community service, for the good. Why do I go on to Yelp and rate a particular business? It's not because I'm receiving any sort of compensation or anything out of it, but it's because I want to let everyone else on the internet, my neighbors and others know uh, my my how the experience that I had there. In the past, you might ask your neighbor, you might ask your friend, use word of mouth as a means of really figuring out what's the best of what's around you. And now, thankfully, we have the internet so we can get this broader, more aggregated experience out of it and to make better purchasing decisions or just make better decisions in general. Um, but along with that, obviously, when you have a platform and the internet in general, which is really this bastion of free speech, of, of where you can go and sort of express your opinions in the First Amendment, or under, you know, hope, just in general, but uh, that's protected by the First Amendment, you are occasionally going to um, have circumstances and times where people won't necessarily 
say, tell the truth. It might not be a fact-based experience. But in general, under those circumstances, platforms like Yelp, TripAdvisor, a Amazon, and so many others already have within their terms of service uh, mechanisms and tools that allow those types of statements and reviews to either be flagged or for business owners to respond. And so really, the ways that the platforms work, it helps to ensure, especially in the case of Yelp, that it is um, an honest first-hand experience. Now, a lot of people might think also that review platforms are places where people kind of go to complain, that they go to just sort of leave a bad experience about it. But at least in the case of Yelp, we found that about 75% or so of the reviews are actually three stars and above. And so, you know, you might think in your head that it's, oh, I'm going to go there and, you know, really ding that business that didn't give me good service. But oftentimes it's people that are going just to actually share their experience with sort of the, the greater Internet society. And so I say all of that because you do at times, unfortunately, have instances where business owners or individuals have not uh, agreed with the statements that have been made about them. Uh, Amy mentioned it from the standpoint of the city paper. Well, just look at the internet, platforms like Yelp or Facebook or others as basically being, it's obviously it's online, it's digital media. So it's like a continuation of that. And unfortunately, some business owners have decided to go the route or individuals have decided to go the route of either threatening or actually attempting to sue people based off of whether it's a Yelp review or a TripAdvisor review or ZocDoc opinion. And the fact of the matter is that most of the time these are individuals um, first-hand experiences or opinions. You know, it's like, I went here, I experienced this, it wasn't up to my, maybe it was a bad experience, and you say it was a bad experience, but generally it's still your first-hand opinion. Uh, but unfortunately, you have this group of, of individuals that sometimes decides to use litigation as a response for rather than actually trying to uh, engage in better customer service. And that's what um, we sort of saw this happening, uh, and it's continued to happen. And what we worry about, though, obviously, and why we've been a big supporter of anti-slap legislation is that while we know, and as Kevin said before, that you know most of these lawsuits, the people that are actually out there trying to either threatening to sue or actually going forward and, and suing someone, and it's sort of falling under this mantle of a slap suit, they don't necessarily expect it to go to trial. They don't necessarily even expect to win if it does go to trial. But what they're hoping is that you'd rather remove your Yelp review or remove your TripAdvisor review and never speak either ill or anything at all about that company again, rather than expend the thousands of dollars or the tens of thousands of dollars to actually defend your statement in court. And, you know, you might think about, like, man, is my, you know, review of the Longworth cafeteria really worth, or maybe Longworth's not a good case because it's a governmental entity, but say, you know, if we were talking about, um, what's a good, like, 18th Street Lounge, I don't know, a place in D.C. Like, is my review of 18th Street Lounge worth, you know, potentially tens of thousands of dollars in litigation and defending it? Unfortunately, most people, most of the time, if you're an average citizen who just decided to share that opinion, you're going to say, no, it's probably not worth that. I'd rather take it down than have to go through that whole process. And 
One, we obviously feel that that's wrong because you have the right to be able to share that opinion, your honest fact-based opinion, um, and it should be, it is protected by the First Amendment. That's sort of the first point there, that it is protected. And then two, we also, you know, are concerned from Yelp's standpoint about the overall chilling effect. Because even if it's not you, if you're not the one who's actually experiencing that suit or that threat directly, if you tell your friends about it or if you say it to someone else, well, I got threatened with a lawsuit based off of my review of a restaurant, then uh, it, it poisons the Internet ecosystem as a whole. And, you know, we all, again, look at the Internet as really being this bastion of freedom of speech where you can go and share your opinions, share your, you know, like your experiences. And so we as Yelp in particular worry about um, slap suits really, really infringing on, on your, your ability in that experience. Actually, it's funny. I, I was just thinking of something. I don't really mean to hog the mic, especially since <laughs> you haven't been able to speak yet. But uh, one thing that you, we've, we've talked a lot about people who might stop and think before they say something and, and the fact that uh, an anti-slap helps you, you know, continue through with that thought. But what about the times you don't even stop to think? I mean, how many of you don't actually have to show hands, you could just nod your head silently, and everybody's done it, have been so angry at something that you turn to Twitter and rant. You don't even think, ah, oh, my flight was delayed again, you suck, insert airline name here. <laughs> you know? Dear cable company, your guy was supposed to be here at five, it's six, not effing here, you know, you've done it. You've all done it, and you haven't even thought. It's probably protected. A lot of this stuff is protected. It's not defamatory. And they're not, you know, for public relations reasons, they're probably not going to sue you. But what if they did? Hi. Uh, as Miranda said, I'm Jenny Rasmussen. I'm here representing the American Association for Justice. Uh, some of you probably know us, but if you don't, uh, I'll just give you a brief overview. We are the world's largest trial bar formed in 1947. We are committed to ensuring that, uh, sorry. <laughs> We're committed to ensuring that all people, individuals, consumers, families, patients, workers, uh, have access to our courts in order to uh, enforce their rights. So uh, when we're talking about slaps and how to define a slap, I, I agree with much of what the, the rest of the panel is saying here. I want to highlight two points that um, I think you should think about in how we define slaps, because this becomes important. One, they're meritless lawsuits. The person bringing them has no expectation that they're actually going to win in court. They're bringing it to bully and harass and silence someone. And, um, and that's wrong. And you don't have a right to bring frivolous things in a court of law. Uh, second is that um, usually, except with some larger media defendants, I would say usually uh, there is a, there's a disparity in resources between the two parties. The person bringing the slap lawsuit has uh, tremendous resources. They can, they can make frivolous filings in a court of law, which might be sanctionable because they can pay for them. Whereas the, the David in this situation, the smaller litigant is, I mean, that is a serious economic threat to them to have to defend against something like this. So I think those two points are really important. And I stress them because in how we define a slap lawsuit, those two points sometimes get lost. And uh, I'm here today, I think, because I'm, I'm going to be presenting somewhat of an opposing view on, a, on the bill that was introduced, the Speak Free Act, not because I disagree that there's, there's a concern here and something should be addressed, but I disagree with the way SLAP is defined in it. And we have serious concerns that as it is defined very broadly, that it's going to apply to a lot of lawsuits that you don't intend it to apply to, such cases as whistleblower lawsuits or civil rights lawsuits or um, 
uh, key TAM security lawsuits, a lot of lawsuits that arise out of statements that are by no by nobody's imagination something you would consider a slap lawsuit. That's a great segue um, to talking about the state of legislation. We have about, I think, 28 states and, and Washington and, and a territory or two that have um, their own anti-slaps uh, legislation, but they're different in each state, right? Some of them are very broad and some are quite narrow. And then we have this new federal legislation, which we've, we've had in the past, um, and, and this one is, I'd like to hear how, from the panelists, how, how is it different from past legislation? How does it differ from the state legislation? Um, you know, what's, what's the purpose of introducing it at the federal level? Um, I'll start off a little bit. Um, from our standpoint, uh, there's need for federal anti-slap legislation, in particular because uh, given the uh, sort of the nature of the internet in general, you can oftentimes have circumstances where you have parties that are in different jurisdictions, and so that that's often. Uh, obviously something that would really necessitate itself more so to the federal side rather than to the state. And then also because of the differences in the uh, nature of the state laws that are in place. So there are 20, as you mentioned, sort of 28 states that have an anti-slap law on the books. Some are really good, like the state of California's or uh, the state of Texas's. They have really good anti-slap laws, and I believe that the Speak Free Act itself was actually modeled on those two pieces of legislation. Um, but then you have states like New York State that actually doesn't have a very good anti-slap law on the books that's relatively narrow in regards to its scope. I believe the same in Pennsylvania. And so what you sometimes end up hap have happening is that there's a forum shopping where um, basically if you're a party that's looking to uh, sue someone for uh, sort of make, make a slap motion based off of or yeah make a slap motion based off of a statement that's made online, you look to see either if you can find a state without an anti-slap law in the books or one that has a relatively weak one. And so from a Yelp standpoint in particular when you're looking at statements that are made on the internet, having a federal uh, standard, at least baseline standard for when it comes to First Amendment anti-slap protections we think is really crucial to ensuring that the speech and statements that you make online is protected. And just to pick up on a couple points, one more example of, for instance, a state law that's now recently been changed that is narrow is Florida, which only applied to statement to lawsuits brought by government officials against a private individual, and that's now been broadened within the last year uh, to give more protection. I mean, you do have other states out there. You mentioned certain stronger and weaker. And Maryland, Maryland has a really weak anti-slap law right now. Virginia has none. And D.C. has one, which is another reason I think we need this federal, that has recently been held to not apply in, when you're in a federal court proceeding. And so you have this big gap, and it's kind of like I'm, I'm a defendant in D.C., I'm, I'm Amy, and, and Dan Snyder decides, well, I'm going to sue as a resident of Virginia, and I'm going to do it in federal court because now, based on this recent court ruling, and it's not just D.C., I think there's one out of Washington as well, now that the, the federal court uh, can't apply the anti-slap law. So there's this huge loophole that's been created that's undercutting the state laws. And that's why that, that we need, that's why we need this legislation to fill in the other states that don't have them, hopefully, and also fill in the protections that exist in some states that do. This is actually relevant, uh, in our case. The, the suit was initially filed in New York, which, as you heard, 
um, didn't have as good a law as D.C. for the anti-slap, and then the case was moved to D.C. So I felt much more like I had a, a club in my hand when the suit was moved to D.C. Um, because there was an anti-slap law here to help protect against these frivolous lawsuits. Um, so when we talk about what the states are doing, uh, there are about 28 states that have some kind of slap law on the book. They all vary, and I think that echoes the point that there's not consensus on how to define a slap lawsuit. Some are very narrow, like Pennsylvania's, that only apply to um, to um, uh, environmental issues, or, or you know, some are quite broader, like California. But even California has this language in its statute that it has to be an expression made in furtherance of your constitutional right to petition or free speech. That language is notably absent in the Speak Free Act, the bill that was introduced in Congress. Also notably absent from any state bill is any kind of change in state versus federal court jurisdiction. What I, something that I think is, is really extraordinary in the Speak Free Act, it actually can, has a removal provision to remove state-based claims filed in state court to federal court, even when there's not diversity jurisdiction. That is extraordinary to me. So it's, it's one thing to have a rule to apply to um, to help litigants who are in federal court because there's diversity of citizenship, and thus that's why they're in federal court. It's quite another to tell states, we're taking these cases out of your state courts and putting them in federal court because we don't trust your judgment. So I, I think when we talk about this issue, it's important to remember that our Constitution is based on a system of federalism. What our framers did not specifically authorize for the federal government, they left for the states, and that's forever preserved in our Tenth Amendment. Um, so you ask yourself, you know, all these states have passed different slap statutes. Some have decided, have considered and decided not to pass a slap statute. Some have ruled their slap statutes to be unconstitutional. Um, others have tried to draft very narrow slap statutes. What happens to those if you pass this big, broad federal bill that removes all these cases to federal court? They're effectively preempted because you can remove them to federal court. There's no longer a state statute that applies to them in the state court. Uh, so that's a... That's very troubling to us because the, the issue of tort law and all the sorts of cases you hear about, whether it's product liability or medical malpractice or defamation, that all exists because of state law. There's no federal tort law. It's a state cause of action. And the Speak Free Act kind of changes that because you're telling them now that it's, it's something that belongs in a federal court. Um, in addition, what I wanted to say is that a uh, and then I want to jump in from <laughs> I think we right after you. Yeah. <laughs> so there is this problem when you when you when you look at what states are doing and what they've decided to do, including the states that have ruled it to be unconstitutional. What uh, what are the unintended consequences of putting a very broad federal bill that preempts all of those? And that's where our organization comes in with its opposition. We think that there are significant concerns that, as written, the bill is going to apply to the cases I, I just listed to you of individuals, not the Goliath who's bringing frivolous lawsuits, but the David, who's going after a Goliath in a whistleblower action, in a civil rights action, in an employment discrimination action, those kinds of cases are the ones that we want to help protect and uh, preserve. So I, I know that a lot of people probably want to comment. <laughs> Great. Um, I'll just, yeah, jump in in response to a few different points that Jenny made. Uh, I think that we fundamentally differ already in regards to, she described it as being overly broad. There are specific exemptions and exceptions for particular areas that are already within the bill and particular limitations, whether it's dealing with commercial parties, whether it's dealing with uh, statements that are made about governmental actors, statements that involve whether uh, state or federal, and then also those that are made about sort of environmental and other areas. The bill itself is really, we think, 
narrowly tailored in the scope in regards to the conversation that it's dealing with. Now, obviously, when you're talking about the question of what is a slap suit, there are a lot of things that could be deemed or considered slap suit, but that's because it ultimately comes back to one particular area that we've been talking a lot about up here, and that's the Constitution and your First Amendment right to speak and to be protected in regards to what you say. If you're making you know, a fact-based statement, if you're sharing your opinion in a manner that's not defamatory, and the, you know, I'm not going to go down the road of, of what's you know, defamation because it's pretty clear and just like at the federal level and it states what the standards of defamation are. And so what we're really talking about here is whether or not if you're in an area that either doesn't have an up-to-date law in the books because really it's just the fact that anti-slap laws in general haven't kept pace with the speed of the internet of how far along we are in regards to how communication happens how people express their opinions online and in many instances state laws haven't caught up yet so even within those 28 states, yes, there are differences. And then the other 22 states that don't have a law in the books. But the real sort of question is that, you know, we're not talking about all of those claims being immediately removed to federal court and being on the onus of federal judges to deal with. It would allow for removal. So it would basically say, okay, you're in California. California's got a great anti-slap law in the books. Why would you bother filing a claim in federal court in that instance if it's a state-based matter? But if you're in... Arkansas, where there isn't an anti-slap law, but you're being hit with something that is on its face, a slap suit, then this would allow for the opportunity of removal to the answer of that question. Is it something that going through, you know, looking at it, that it's on its face would be, you know, when you file your pleadings and you, and you sort of say what, what's happened and, you know, the, as a defendant and you make this motion, that in a very expedited process, you can figure out, okay, this is a slap suit that a judge can figure that out and throw it out in that case, or at least on that point. And then because of the fact that a slap suit was filed against you and you've had to expend thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees, then at least you know, have the other party pay that off or provide some sort of compensation so that you're not left, one, with your speech having been threatened, two, with your time having been taken away, and then three, with tens of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees afterwards. And so that's why we feel that this is really important and why, in particular, we support the Speak Free Act. And we don't think that it's overly broad. We actually think that when you're talking about what a slap suit is, which is basically a meritless lawsuit that infringes upon your First Amendment right to free speech. And the fact of the matter is, you know, a lot of speech happens on the Internet. Don't get me wrong. A lot of speech happens there, but it should receive the same protections as someone like Amy received or the city paper received because what they did was in print. I'd like to follow up on that with something that I don't think we've been quite clear on, which is the effect of the special motion to dismiss that exists in the Speak Free Act. All right, so it's not, uh, we, we have, you know, we, we really need to be clear about this. It's not as simple as I'm the defendant, I've been served with what I believe is a frivolous lawsuit, and I file my motion to dismiss, and then this all goes away. You know, if I can show that, that my right, and it specifically, um, the, the bill allows me as a defendant to file a special motion to dismiss, um, if I've made an oral or written statement or other expression that was made in connection with an official proceeding or about a matter of public concern, and then there's certain exemptions. Well, that's actually very similar, I think, to the, to the um, California law where you talked about a, a statement made in, in furtherance of the rights of petition, which both, in fact, are at the core of the First Amendment. 
So what I do as a defendant is I show that I've made this type of statement. That's my first response. But that's not the end of the case. I don't win there. What happens is now the plaintiff still gets his or her its bite at the apple. The difference now is their standard has risen. Okay, now they have to show that the lawsuit in question uh, would, you know, they have to show that the claim is likely to succeed on the merits. And yes, is this harder? I think so. Clearly, well, clearly it is. But the point is they're not kicked out of court. And I think this is, this is, this is important to remember because what it does is if I'm a defendant and I make a statement and I'm sued and otherwise I would back down, you know, that, that, that's a big burden. Now this shifts the burden to the person bringing the lawsuit that would otherwise restrict my constitutional right to free speech. And we do this all the time in First Amendment lawsuits. That's the core of the number one biggest First Amendment lawsuit that people who haven't even gone to lawsuit know, say it with me, New York Times versus Sullivan, was all about shifting the balance from one side to the other, recognizing that certain truths might, uh, you know, we, we want the truth to come out and in, inevitably we'll hear certain falsehoods. Well, the opposite decision the court could have come to is we want to keep all the falsehood out. So we're going to, in effect, keep some of the truth out. It's a balance shifting, a burden shifting, and that's really what I think this bill does. So I, I, I agree. It shifts burdens, this bill. The question is, are you only burdening people who bring slap lawsuits? And the answer is no. It's burdening people who have legitimate, worthy lawsuits who are now going to have to fight these slap motions. And I think that the most illustrative of this is, is the use of a slap statute gone bad. Um, I'm sure some of the people in this room have seen the HBO documentary Going Clear. There was a woman featured in that documentary, if you remember, named Monique Rathbun. Do you remember her? She brought a lawsuit against the Church of Scientology. And if, if you're a legal geek like me, you look up what happened to her cases after watching that documentary. But this is what happened. Uh, she brought a very legitimate harassment lawsuit against the Church of Scientology. She was never a member of the church, so she could bring this lawsuit. Uh, the Church of Scientology has used Texas's anti-slap statute to cripple her case. So even in cases like Monique, where she can meet this burden, this, this much higher burden of proving that she has a legitimate case, the judge agreed with her. He ruled against the Church of Scientology. Her case has been on appeal for over a year now. She's never had a chance at discovery. Just the basic elements of building her, her factual case. Uh, if the Speak Free Act was law, not only would she have that burden, but her case could have been removed to federal court and likely would have been removed by federal court because it would have given the Church of Scientology the right to remove that case to federal court, uh, where I, I'm sure her appeal process would be even longer than, than the state of Texas just because of our judicial vacancies and, and overburning of our federal court. So I think when you, when you think about, yes, it is, it is shifting the burden, that's exactly the point we get at when we say that um, you shouldn't uh, – strengthen the constitutional rights of some by violating the constitutional rights of others. And that's why the Washington uh, State Supreme Court struck down its slap statute, saying that their statute is unconstitutional. And I'll I'll read a great quote from that. I actually love this opinion. Um, Basically saying that the legislature may enact anti-slap legislation, to prevent vexatious litigants from abusing the judicial process by filing frivolous lawsuits for improper purposes. We agree. The constitutional conundrum that the slap statute creates is that it seeks to protect one group of citizens' constitutional rights of expression and petition, what we're all talking about today, by cutting off another group's constitutional rights of petition and jury trial. This a legislature cannot do. 
I'm submitting to you that it's, it's true for Congress as much as it was true for Washington. Congress cannot pass a law that protects one group's constitutional rights at the expense of another, most notably your right to petition under the First Amendment to our courts for a real grievance and your, your right to a civil jury trial under the Seventh Amendment. Kevin, did you have a response to that? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I just want a clarification. Are you saying that you think the Speak Free Act would be unconstitutional? Yeah, we believe it is subject to constitutional challenges, right? Unless you want to. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I, I recognize it's a very broad bill. Um, there's no doubt about it. And, again, it doesn't the, – the, the issue I think you're, you're making with um, – regard to the appeals is, is one of interlocutory appeal, which is provided in this statute. And that allows someone, even when the case isn't resolved, to go to court when a key issue, to go on appeal when a key issue has been resolved. And that exists in a lot of First Amendment lawsuits and has existed for years. I lose on a, you know, a motion for summary judgment on a key issue. And I can immediately go to court. And there's a reason for that as well, because I as a defendant, you know, in an anti-slap, if I have to then immediately go to discovery, even though I think the key First Amendment issue of my having been slapped has been answered the wrong way, then, of course, the penalty is on me. And I think, you know, as a plaintiff, you make these decisions all the time. As a defendant, you're reacting all the time. And it's very different, you know, it's, it's a, again, a very different position to be in, to have to be reacting and versus making the choice yourself to say, I'm going to go to court, and I understand what this means but otherwise being drawn in like Amy and, and forced into court with then the fight ahead of you for so long. I'd like to bring this back, and you can follow up in the answer to this question, I think, um, to the Internet, where in, the, in Amy's case, you knew who was getting sued, but on the Internet, you often have people hidden behind usernames or um, some kind of anonymous anonymizing screen. So what happens in that case? Does the bill address that? Um, you know, do those people have the, the right to anonymity, and, and where do the platforms come into play? Sure. So I'll try to respond to a few different things. I think in regards in regards to Washington State specifically, uh, you have to look at that decision by the state Supreme Court in the Washington State microcosm. They were responding specifically to the Washington State Constitution and what was specified there, and that there were issues of concern in regards to how the bill had been drafted to being uh, conforming to the Washington State Constitution. So, and again, we disagree with uh, the AAJ on the point of that applying on the federal level. We don't think that there are the same concerns that are raised. And in regards to uh, infringing upon the rights of individuals to make these types of petitions and claims, let's sort of put this a little bit more into context, or at least what I think is in the context. You know, if you're suing someone for defamation, generally speaking, you're either, you know, either a business of some kind or you're probably a public figure. That's normally, these are the types of people that we're typically talking about that are, you know, filing these types of suits. Is it, a, is it eliminating their ability to file this type of suit? We've already established that this bill is not, that it raises certain procedural and sort of, you know, procedural or processes in regards to the substantive question of whether or not you're violating the person's First Amendment right. But generally, at the end of the day, we're talking about either a business or someone that has the resources available to use them to intimidate you with uh, a meritless lawsuit. Whereas on the other end here, you know, I can, I have, I think, like 12 
people or so on this page. So, for example, a woman, Katie M. from Chicago, who wrote, you know, a review on a window shade company and then ended up getting a slap suit filed against her. Uh, or Zaki Ibrahim, who uh, had a negative experience with ZBAC auto trading and got fi uh, a slap suit that was filed against him. Or Elise Goldberg, who... Uh, was sued by a Beverly Hills dentist about a negative Yelp experience on Yelp. So what do these people have in common that they wrote about their experience on Yelp? We're talking about instances in dealings with a dentist, in dealings with a doctor's office, or excuse me, in dealings with an auto company, with a window shade company. It kind of goes to the point that you can have slap suits that deal with the whole breadth of different issues and things. But ultimately, it comes back still to that sort of First Amendment um, question of whether or not your speech is, is being infringed upon. Um, but to the second point, and to your question, Miranda, in regards to anonymity, in that sense, um, Yelp fundamentally believes that your, and also we think that it's been proven time and time again in courts, that individuals have the right to anonymity in regards to statements, again, fact-based statements or experiences that they make about a particular person, thing, or business, or, you know, especially on the internet. And where this really comes into play is, let's say you had a bad experience with a doctor, you know, maybe you're a man and you went to a doctor about man things, or a woman and you went to, you know, a, a gynecologist and whatnot, and you had a bad experience and you want to share that experience but obviously it's a, a, about a sensitive matter or at least area of medicine so you don't necessarily want to attach your name to it. Um, Yelp as a platform and others allow you to have that anonymity and what the bill does in particular is that it allows us to protect that anonymity um, and then at the very least the uh, plaintiff or the party that originally is filing the suit would have to take the steps of presenting some sort of evidence to actually show that it's necessary to breach that an anonymity. We actually dealt with a case in Virginia that was sort of, sort of along these lines where um, the Hadid Carpet Cleaning Company filed a motion to get Yelp to uh, breach the anonymity of seven individuals who'd posted negative reviews about their, their business. Uh, we fought it, and honestly, we actually lost the first two times in Virginia in the state court process because of the quirkiness of Virginia law and it sort of comes back to you know the laws not being up to date within the state and basically threatening the anonymity of these individuals who we knew were real. We'd actually had the opportunity to speak with them and I ended up meeting one of them outside of the job randomly and they, these were real first-hand experiences. Um, but we had to take it to the Supreme Court in Virginia, and ultimately we didn't win on uh, substantive grounds. We did win, though, but we basically won on venue. Basically, uh, the court saying that the Hadid Carpet Cleaning Company should have filed its claim in, in California because we're a California-based company. But what we like about the Speak Free Act as well is that it still allows us to protect the anonymity of our users or if you are on other platforms where you decide to an anonymously post. And it still does allow for the business to... Uh, if they are able to provide the evidence there to prove and to get 
the, the access to that person's information, but at least there are processes in place that provide you or I with greater protections. I, I just want to echo a, a point about um, what Laurent said, that um, uh, you know, this idea, once again, of David versus Goliath and that uh, these suits are meritless. Nothing in the Speak Free Act limits its scope to those kinds of lawsuits. Nothing limits it to meritless lawsuits or lawsuits where there's this great disparity between parties. So I think that's something, uh, something to consider. Now, we're, we're talking about um, anonymous reviews now. So I, uh, I'm, I'm guessing the, the part of the Speak Free Act that you're talking about that helps companies like Yelp would be the motion to quash for the, the personally identifiable information. We didn't have any uh, opposition to that, that provision in the bill, just so that's clear. Uh, we were concerned about mostly the scope of this bill, how it is designed to to quickly and, and, and with prejudice get rid of these lawsuits, and that the scope is so broad that you're, you're capturing cases that you're not meaning to, such as slap lawsuits, cases like Monique Rathbun's, where she had a legitimate harassment lawsuit that she's now um, having to spend tons of, tons of resources and appellate counsel on to, to try to fight what is essentially a, a, a meritless slap motion. So we, uh, we promised to get you out quickly. This is a flash briefing. So we have 10 more minutes. Um, we'd like to open it up to questions. If anyone has, we should have a roving mic. Um, yes, in the white jacket. So the question is quantifying uh, how big the problem is. I have some statistics only for California. And I'm going to admit right now, I'll read through my notes, because there's <laughs> no way I was remembering all of this. Between 2005 and 2010, the Judicial Council of California notes the parties reported a total of 2,881 anti-slap motions in trial courts throughout California or roughly 481 motions per year. During that six-year period, an appeal was filed only in only 375 of those cases, 13 at a time. So put another way, in nearly 90% of the cases, no anti-SLAP appeal was filed. Um, and that's sort of given that, the, that there were about 6.2 million civil filings in superior courts during that period, um, the 2,881 anti-SLAPs constitute only about, I don't know, 0.046% of all lawsuits. That's just California. I, I think that's a really good question, too, because um, uh, that's for California. We don't know. This bill is a federal bill. It applies to federal courts. We don't know anything about what, how many of these slap lawsuits are being filed in, in other states and in federal courts. I think it's a good question to ask that before we pass legislation that's going to uh, circumvent the Rules Enabling Act and also... Um, expand the jurisdiction of, of federal courts is how big of a problem is this? I think it, I'm sorry, go ahead. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that a slap that is filed in court and that is moving forward, that is generally the last step of the process that we're talking about here. It's not that you immediately say you're going to file a slap suit and then file it, you know, against the person who wrote a review or made a statement online. You generally let it linger and have your attorney basically go through this whole intimidation process to try to get the statement either retracted or to get the, re the review removed before you actually, as the plaintiff, 
even bother filing in federal court. So when you look at that number, that number isn't really indicative of the overall threat and the chilling effect that's happening. And I would say, as the, you know, in this world that's constantly changing, I find this anti-slap very critical to our society. You know, the, the, the ability to speak and the ability to speak freely and for individuals to have opinions and to not be threatened and to, and that chilling effect, which you can imagine taking place, you know, fairly quickly, um, unless that we come together and say this, you know, you're not allowed to threaten to sue me because I wrote about your carpet company. Um, you know, uh, those seven individuals probably aren't going to be posting many more reviews. Um, so I think that we have an opportunity now to, to take a look at communication and, and allow people their opinions. Uh, not only media organizations, um, but individuals. And that's where I see the import of what we're looking at to pass this. Also, just to provide a little bit of context, because we're having, I think, uh, a very uh, good and thoughtful uh, conversation about anti-slap or slap suits in general and also about the Speak Free Act. Um, but in regards to the Speak Free Act in particular, uh, while you know the AAJ has expressed concerns about the bill, there was recently a letter that was actually sent to Congress uh, to the Judiciary Committee that had about 35 different organizations and groups in support. And these were folks obviously like Yelp, TripAdvisor, Zenefits, Glassdoor.com, groups such as Public Knowledge, the Center for Democracy and Technology, the R Street Institute, FreedomWorks. These are folks on both the left and the right, and even the National Association of Broadcasters that said that they support the Speak Free Act and that they want us to move, that they want the bill to move forward in Congress. And even for the that's just specifically in regards to the Speak Free Act. On the issue of federal anti-slap legislation, there are even more companies and organizations out there that have said that they support federal anti-slap legislation. Um, and even on the state level as well that have been promoting it. You have organizations like the NPAA that have been going around supporting state anti-slap bills in different jurisdictions as well. So when you sort of look at this this bill and this issue, it's really one that's united a lot of groups that traditionally have been on the opposite sides of the debate here in Congress. Uh, I want to reiterate that, that point, too, that on the, on the issue of um, supporting SLAP legislation, uh, both of who's in support and who's against, many of uh, AAJ's state affiliates have actually supported um, SLAP legislation at the state level. So I, I, I don't think this is not to say, I don't want my testimony to be taken here today, is that there's, there's no solution here, turn around and go, go home. I, I think it's that the devil's in the details and that you're getting into a very careful balance of constitutional rights here. Um, so that I, I think this, this discussion, which is worthy and very important, should have a lot of creative thinking and should any solution should be narrowly tailored and carefully crafted to make sure that it affects uh, slap lawsuits and nothing but slap lawsuits. I'm sure it would be a deterrent, but I, I also think that would be perhaps a, a truly overbroad solution to the pro problem. I, I mean, 
it, it should be clear now that that we don't all agree on that. We we agree on the concept. We don't all agree on the details. And one of the differences um, I think we have is is that I don't think this is necessarily overbroad. I don't think it goes too far beyond slap suits. I'm sure there will be instances of where people are caught up in a slap situation. And, and, and the little guy really does lose out even where the anti-slap statute exists. I'm sure that will happen. It will be unfortunate. And I do think that on the whole, we would look to preserve free speech rights with a broad speak free act and thereby protect more people. And because there, there have clearly been uh, a number of people that have, you know, that have been subjected to slap suits. Well, you've given one example. I know you would have a lot. We could come back with our own. I think we all agree. And, and it goes back to what I said earlier about the balancing. We, we both agree on that. There's a, a sort of balancing test um, that, that you have to come into where you balance everybody's rights. And I think we're just sort of on different sides of that tilt. But I do think that adopting full scale the English rule for me would be too far. I want to chime in really quickly on this because I want to make sure to get this point in there because I think it, it's important, uh, especially in regards to what was discussed earlier. So you mentioned in Texas uh, sort of the Church of Scientology uh, and the, them filing an anti-slap motion there and having it really sort of tied up uh, in, I guess, at the appellate level of discovery. It's my understanding, though, that with the Speak Free Act, that there's actually uh, language in the bill as well that if you are the defendant and you frivolously file an anti-slap motion mm -hmm. that you would still be forced to pay some sort of fee or restitution right. and, and that's plaintiff. yeah that's what I was going to get at it does allow the judge to impose that not the not the full English rule for all cases now I see what you're saying is is would you adopt the fact that the losing party pays in an anti-slap and it does exist in the speak free free act and I don't think it's you know it's 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 not that it's always going to be the full attorney's fees it's not that it's always going mm -hmm. to be in every case but it does create that right, which is extremely valuable, probably more valuable as a deterrent than simply saying the case will be accelerated and kicked out more more quickly. And uh, I, I think this is a good point when you talk about is, is it enough to deter true true slappers or true people who are abusing the, the, the court system? And the, the problem is, is that it deters the Davids, but it doesn't deter the Goliaths. The Goliaths have the money to, to, to pay sanctions, to pay the other side's attorney's fees. It doesn't prevent them, and that's what you're really trying to get at here. It does have a chilling effect on David's, particularly David's that are presenting novel theories under the law. You know, there was a time in our country when the, the theory under Brown versus Board Education was considered extremely novel, and they won. That doesn't mean that if had they had lost, which was a big risk that, that counsel took, they should have paid someone else's attorney's fees. I, I think in, you know, imposing um, that kind of um, English rule on our American system would have a significant chilling effect on, on all litigants. And we actually, we had something similar to that from 1983 to 1993 in the federal rules. It created a ton of side litigation on this satellite issue of what's frivolous and what's not. I mean, the council was... Um, uh, someone would file a, a Rule 10 sanctions motion, and then you would immediately file another Rule 10 sanctions motion in response to their Rule 10 sanctions motion, saying, oh, well, this is frivolous, that they're calling me frivolous. So it, it got out of hand, and our, our, the judicial conference, the federal judges, actually opposed it and asked Congress to change it back so that they, to back to the original American rule. So I do think, I think that's an excellent question. It's this threat of that you having to pay another attorney's fees is significant, but it's significant to the to the Davids, not the Goliaths, and and that's who we're trying to prevent here is the Goliaths who are going after um, reporters and and Yelp reviewers, uh, people who really don't have the resources to to, to fight them in a court of law. 
Speaking of Goliath, still, I want to give one more example, and I realize we're almost out of time here, but that really, I think, helps to go to the heart of why you need federal anti-slap legislation, and it involves the state of Nevada. So uh, Nevada, uh, for a, about a year and a half, has had a really good anti-slap law in the books, or had a really good anti-slap law in the books. Uh, and a resident in Nevada, and hopefully he doesn't listen to this or hear this because, you know, then I'll have to hire one of you guys. Um, Steve Wynn. So Steve Wynn lost a lawsuit, a defamation suit in California on, I think it was March 4th. Don't exactly quote me on the day, but I want to say around March 4th, uh, based off of an anti-slap motion. So he lost it in the state of California. And then, though, about three weeks later, around March 20th or 21st, in the state of Nevada, there was a bill introduced in the state legislature to gut the anti-slap law that Nevada had had on the books for less than two years. And who was it supported by fully? Who was it really backed by? It was backed by uh, Wynn Industries, Steve Wynn's company. And so this bill was introduced and in less than three weeks afterwards, already passed the Nevada State Senate. It passed the Senate. It was over in the Nevada House. Companies like Yelp and TripAdvisor and others were scrambling. A lot of um, sort of First Amendment freedom of speech groups were scrambling in the state to try to help to slow this process and stop what was otherwise going to be a bill that was going to gut the rights of Nevadans to speak freely online. And Thankfully, eventually, we were able to work towards a compromise that still really kept the core of the Nevada law. But it kind of goes to the point of when you've got this, when you're talking about Goliaths and you've got, you know, a billionaire casino mogul who literally goes and, you know, works to get the law of the state changed in order to protect the interests of people like him, this really goes to say that if you can have that much sort of a fluctuation in regards to uh, legislation that will impact the ability of people to speak freely online and to share their opinions, why you need a federal minimum standard here. And that's what the Speak Free Act does. I, I know we're right at time. I, I, I want to reframe this David versus Goliath uh, discussion in a different way. Um, and, and, and by doing so, bring it back to where we started. You, you talked about it in terms of Will the attorney's fees be a deterrent to Goliath from bringing the suit because, you know, will this hurt them in any way? No. That's not the point, though. The point is Daniel Snyder saying, indeed, the cost of litigation will presumably quickly outstrip the asset value of the Washington City paper. And so he thinks the city paper will roll over instead, you know, in, in the face of having to pay the litigation fees. But guess what? Now they don't. If they believe, if they believe they have a merit, merited case and they're going to win and they can get their attorney's fees back, then they are finally willing to go to court and fight. And that's the way you have to look at it, that the penalty isn't on the person suing. The, 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 the benefit comes back, or the, or the deterrent effect is that you're pushing on them, you're hitting them, is not going to make an impact at all. All right, thank you all. Um, on behalf of the Congressional Internet Caucus and the Advisory Committee, uh, really great discussion here. Um, the Twitter information, like we said, is on the programs if you want to get in touch with anyone for more information. A number of organizations have reports floating around about this issue, and we encourage you to look into it further and come to the, our events for the rest of the, the month of July.